You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Thank you. Good morning. That is a good reminder that my number one priority is as a husband and father. Because if you have the kind of ambition I have, you know, the dreams I have, those can really become idols. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, I spoke last month, in fact. Is this okay? Distance? Oh, I want to set up a little stopwatch here because time turns into a an illusion up here. And I don't want to feel like I've gone, hey, 15 minutes and it's been an hour. So last month I spoke on story as meaning. We were in this series all summer, stories that form us, story, the stories that shape us. And I talked about story as meaning at a very foundational level, story as change, and how sacrament was our participation in a story of change for a very cosmic meaning, the, the thing that it all means. Apologies if it was really heady and deep for 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. But um, today I want to talk about the stories we tell ourselves or the stories we sell ourselves. Often, we're always writing an internal narrative. And we're, we are participating in a story, right, as Christians. We're participating in a cosmic story. And that story is something we believe because we are Christians. You know, people of other faiths believe they're in a cosmic story that has maybe a different meaning. But we are also participating in our own stories as individuals, and the funny thing about story is that it doesn't exist, right, until the telling of it. A story doesn't exist until the telling of it. The meaning exists, things exist, but the story doesn't exist until it is told. And as we go through our lives, our experiences, ups and downs, highs, lows, wins and losses, we inevitably we'll find ourselves trying to make meaning out of each experience, right? Which is to say we're grasping at story. Every moment of the day, every day, every new turn of life, we're grasping at story, we're grasping at meaning, trying to write it, trying to understand it as we go. So I want to talk about those stories today, those stories that we're writing for ourselves the ones we're selling ourselves. Stories of success, stories of failure, stories of achievement, stories of loss. In my own story, I feel like I am just starting to understand the purpose of loss and the emptiness of success, or at least as I have defined it, and what it all has to do with Christ, the cosmic meaning of my story, of our story as Christians. That is the lens through which we view our story. So, we'll begin with Christ and his words to his disciples. Um, I'll read. You don't need to read along. Uh, you can listen, read along in your minds. I'm going to read from Matthew 16, verses 21 to 26. Then I'm going to tack on a verse from John 16. That is from the same period um, in John. It's just this verse isn't 
part of the account of Matthew. So I'm kind of putting them together together here. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So from that time, this was the part of Jesus' ministry towards the end, where we're entering kind of the final act of his ministry on earth. And this is earlier in this chapter, this is the part where after several years of signs and wonders, his fame has grown. He's saying to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Like, what's the word of who I am? And they're like, some say you're Elisha. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So that's the time of, the, of, of this exchange right now, where Jesus is starting to reveal to them a level of meaning, sort of a plot twist if you will. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I have said things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus in this text is introducing a new part of his story to his disciples. He's giving them a spoiler of what's to come. And that's the central theme that I want to explore, and it's the illusion of success. Or disillusionment. Of success, right? Disillusionment is a great word that means we finally stopped seeing what was not true. An illusion is something you see that isn't, right? I think I see something, but it's not in fact true. So to be disillusioned is to stop seeing that falsehood. There was an expectation among the disciples who were these men and women who really bought into the Jesus narrative, right? These early adopters. Um, A narrative that started in their childhood, certainly if they were Jews. Uh, They grew up reading the Hebrew scriptures. And there was a narrative that they were learning about what it all meant. And for the disciples who were not part of the Jewish faith, the Gentiles, they had their own kind of context for what it all meant, starting from their childhood. And Jesus was the fulfillment of something, right? God made flesh, He wasn't something new that they weren't looking for. They had context for Messiah. They had a story in mind. A validation for whatever suffering that they had endured. It's really hard to think about the context of the disciples. Following Jesus in in the day, in the context, from our privileged modern perspective in the modern West. It's hard to really understand 
how they lived. These were people who knew loss. They lived under oppression, religiously, politically, economically. And so for the last few years, they watched Jesus perform nature-defying miracles. They'd participate with him. The signs and the wonders prove his identity. His message is profound. His stories that he tells are like razors cutting to the heart. He attracts masses. His fame grows. Even the winds and the waves obey him. It's all leading up, right, to a societal, global, cosmic victory. The kingdom of God on earth. A win. Success. Achievement. At least that's what the disciples think. And too often that's what we think. It's all leading up to a great win. Or if you're like me, a struggling filmmaker who has made his art, his vocation, my big break. I want to tell a story. This is a story I'd love to tell on in a film someday. It's a true story. It's a story of, takes place in our day, our era, about a NASCAR driver named Michael Waltrip. Any NASCAR fans in the room? Good. Me neither. Yeah, David a little bit. Good. Then, then if I get some of the details wrong, you won't call me out. Um, this is a story. I grew up in the Northeast. NASCAR was not a thing, but I heard this story as an adult and I said, wow, that, that's a movie. There's a movie in there. If you know anything about NASCAR, there's maybe three names that you might know that people like me who had no context for it know. And it's Daryl Waltrip, Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, these sort of titans that transcend the sport that everybody kind of knows. Michael Waltrip was Daryl Waltrip's younger brother. Michael wanted to race, but he was 16 years younger than Daryl. So as Michael was growing and becoming of the age to race, his older brother was already a star seeing success, and Daryl did not become sort of the mentor and teacher that Michael wanted. He found a teacher in Richard Petty, the uh, man who's got the record for the most Daytona wins of all time, considered probably the greatest of all time, maybe among the two, with Dale Earnhardt. Richard coached him up. Michael Waltrip became a professional NASCAR driver, and he was a very mediocre professional. There were lots of racers, and not all get the chance to win over the span of their career. But Michael Waltrip eventually held the distinction, the record, in fact, for having 463 career starts without a win. This was the most losses without a win ever in the history of the sport. He was, in fact, the most losingest driver in NASCAR history. And then he found a mentor in Dale Earnhardt. Richard Petty got him started. Dale Earnhardt would become his mentor. Dale was already a legend. He had 76 career wins by this point, including the 1998 Daytona 500, the most prestigious race in all of NASCAR. It is the World Cup of the sport. And as he was aging, Dale Earnhardt, he wanted to put together a team including himself and his hotshot son, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Dale Sr. was brilliant, and he 
thought he could evolve the sport of NASCAR, taking a cue from other races with the idea of drafting, like biking and even running to a degree. It was a way to improve success for the whole brand, the whole team. If he couldn't win, maybe a driver, a driver from Team Dale could win. And depending on how the race was going, they could improve the other's chances of the driver using the physics of the speed they were going and the cars blocking others. But also, you can actually push a car in front of you if you get right behind him at a certain speed. So Dale has this idea to evolve the sport. It's something we do that all these teams do now. Each racer, they're part of a team, and each one's competing for themselves. But if you can't win and your team wins, it's still a victory. Dale Earnhardt was the first to have this idea. And he picked Michael Waltrip to join his team and buy into this new evolution of the sport. He saw a promising racer in Michael. This is the short version of the story, so I will cut to the chase. Pun intended. Um, Daytona 500, 2001. The first Daytona that Dale and his team put their plan into action, his team being himself, Dale Jr. and Michael Waltrip. To add to the you-can't-make-this-stuff-up aspect of the story, Daryl Waltrip, Michael's older brother who had just retired, it was his first debut day in the booth as a commentator for Fox Sports. So he was calling the race, that, and it was his first race. Um, Michael Waltrip woke up that morning. And as he puts it, had nothing but winning on his mind. The only driver in the history of the sport to have as many starts without a win, a bona fide loser. He was determined to win for himself, for Dale. And he did. He won. He won the 2001 Daytona 500. He broke his record losing streak. On top of that, his teammate Dale Jr. came in second. Dale Sr.'s drafting idea worked to perfection. They helped each other win. But the driver who knew loss and finally tasted victory would experience the greatest loss of his life on that finish line. For that was the race that Dale Sr. was killed. Michael wrote a book. And he talks about the success narrative that he wrote for himself. That morning when he woke up. And finally when he won. At the finish line. At the finish line, word wasn't out yet that Dale was dead, just that he had a crash, which was a very common, unconcerning event, especially the particular crash that Dale Sr. experienced. It was not a very traumatic type of crash. So he heard he had crashed. He wasn't too concerned. Michael said that he was envisioning the moment. He was writing the narrative in his story right then when Dale would hug him, they would hug each other, and he would say, I knew it worked. You, would, you did it. But that victory wouldn't happen. Instead, Michael Waltrip's story of winning looked a lot like failure, pain, suffering. That did not go the way he thought. Looking back on our scripture text, the fact that Jesus' disciples were preparing for a big win in their story is, I suspect, very easy for us to identify in this modern culture we live in, a culture defined by success. Winning. Sports are literally winning competitions that generate billions of dollars. We order our schedule around these things. Politics has become a winning competition. And the, the whole world is wrestling with this. But I mean particular, particularly our American culture. 
Our idol is success and we worship it. Sometimes this is most pervertedly displayed in our Christian subculture that frames winning as divine. To achieve, to prosper is to have the favor of God. To fail, to suffer. That's either a test meant to prove your strength or it's a punishment because God thinks you're too selfish. Accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Saved, prosper, have eternal life. Do a thing, get a reward, win. As if our faith is a transaction or our achievement is the outcome. If that's not a perverse gospel, if the word perverted is too strong for you, it's at the very minimum an immature, incomplete gospel. That is not a gospel of fullness. A mature gospel which frames suffering and failure as a crucial part of the process. So when Jesus is talking to his disciple, this part of the story is entering the final chapter of Jesus' ministry. And he's telling his disciples, guys... The wind that you think is coming isn't. This is not going to go like you think. It's going to look a lot like failure for a while. It's going to look like suffering. And when you, Peter, feel all macho and say to me, never on my watch, Lord, I'm going to call you Satan because that is a human way of seeing, not a divine one. If any of you want to be my followers, take up your cross. An image that they certainly had context for. Certainly not yet viscerally. We have the benefit of really knowing what that means. Take up your cross daily. They didn't quite know what that meant in the time. You will have trials. You will have tribulations. You will suffer. You will fail. But I am saying this for your peace, John 16. I am saying this for your peace. What an upside-down way of seeing. I'm telling you this for your peace so that you take heart because I have overcome the world. It's as if he's saying, starting today, remember what had just happened. Who, who do the people say that I am? Elisha, Jeremiah, who do you say that I am? You're the son of the living God. Ah, you are correct. And now let me reframe the story for you. The illusion of success. What your suffering will mean. What it all means. And if you want to be my disciples, you are going to participate. Richard Rohr frames the temptation of Jesus in the desert in an interesting way. The temptation of Jesus, remember, that was sort of at the beginning of his ministry, kind of this retreat that he goes away for 40 days fast and comes back from. And then the, the, the ministry really begins. It's a commencement of sorts. Satan appears to Christ three times with three different types of temptations. And it's these temptations, these compulsions, these demons, if you will, that we are called to confront. The compulsion to be right, the compulsion to be in control, the compulsion to be successful. We all struggle with them. I am no exception. I, but the first two, I find it easier to surrender to. In fact, I'm often happy not to be right. 
I'm happy to concede an argument. I don't take that for granted because I know many of us cannot be wrong. It's really hard for us to like concede an argument or, or not be right. Got to prove my point, whatever the cost. I see myself, though, as a bridge builder, a peacemaker. So that's something that's easy for me. Control. I crave control as much as the next guy. More, in fact, perhaps, as a filmmaker, it's central to my art, creative control. But God bless having children. They are the greatest machines I could have created, co-created, to surrender control. Even the... Can I get an amen? Even the ups and downs of my own career as someone who takes giant risks and has massive ambition. Filmmaking is a violent oscillation between encouragement and discouragement, wins and losses. And the more I remember I am not in control, the more I can weather that violence. But that third compulsion, the compulsion to be successful, That's the one that grips me the hardest. I am actively working myself away from that idol of achievement. There were times very, very recently where I would have a complete identity crisis or just a breakdown of depression if I wasn't succeeding on some metric that I had set for myself or that my industry had set for myself. Part of this is the American exceptionalism lie that I've been born into, but where we tend to actually view our amazing liberties and our amazing resources in this amazing country as gain for ourselves instead of ways to serve our fellow man. Part of this is that I'm an Enneagram 3. If you know the Enneagram, which is a personality. Three? Three, what? Three wing what? Four? I'm a three wing four. Brandon Will, it's a three-wing four. Three-wing four, Stuart. It's a, uh, the Enneagram's an amazing personality typing uh, system, and I encourage you to sort of dig into it. Enneagram three is the achiever. So part of it is a personality type um, of myself. Part of it is the legacy of men and women that I have been born into, that I come from, um, starting with my father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, men and women of legacy who have done incredible, noteworthy things for the kingdom. So it's in my nature to achieve, and it's in my fallen nature to identify my value with that achievement. It's very hard for me, I'm going to confess something to you as a, as a filmmaker, an artist, many of the, you in the room, I don't know what it's like for you, John Mark, but it's hard for me to make art for its own sake, even though that is what we should be doing ultimately, making art for its own sake. It's hard for me to do that because I inevitably, unconsciously, I'm always framing my art for what it will achieve. Some of this is good, and, and, and I feel that my ambition can be used and will be used for the cosmic good. I want to be a man of influence, and, and I want to think of my work as a sacrament. That is healthy. That is good. I want to think of who it might be for, how far it can reach. That is okay to an extent. Because if you're like me, you're always writing the narrative in your brain, selling yourself a story, framing the the events in your life towards some future conclusion. And it usually involves me as the protagonist. 
and everyone else is either an antagonist or merely an ally. How many of us view Christ as our ally on our personal success stories? What was Christ to Peter? What was the story that Peter was writing for himself that day when he's just like, you're going to suffer, Lord, not on my watch. Who was Christ to Peter? Or do we see ourselves as part of his story? And this is where we misunderstand failure. We see it as opposition to success. But success is an illusion to true fullness. And failure is everything toward that fullness. I frame my plot points, I frame my failures as plot points on the story of my achievement. And that's wrong because failure is my friend. It is my teacher. Success has practically nothing to teach me on the spiritual path. We learn from letting go, not from holding tight. Roy said that. The inner life is cultivated in failure. And suffering through failure, which is to say enduring it with patience, is what produces the authority that success could never produce. We must stop creating these success stories for ourselves and failure narratives for others. We are called to be in solidarity with the life cycle. I've talked about this a lot, the life cycle. Whether it's a couple times I've spoken here or, you know, once a month I'll host and and share a little bit. The life cycle, creation, birth, growth, death, new birth, new growth, death. The cycle of life that we see in many ways, many moments throughout the day. Success has a way of being a counterfeit. When we achieve something, we have a sense of pride and and accomplishment, both good things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's a very preacher phrase. I remember hearing that one time. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I thought it was funny. I was like, what? Don't hear what you're not saying. Okay, got it. Illusion. Success, achievement, they're not bad. They are welcome. They are helpful. And when you really need a win, they are peace. God is a good father who likes giving gifts to his kids. What I'm saying is they are not the conclusion. We should never say, after a win, it is finished. Recall those words. It is finished. Where did Christ say them? At the height of his achievement? No, at the height of quite literally, of what looked like utter failure. Can you imagine the plot twist of the cross? At least to the disciples. Christ was preparing for it. He knew he would suffer. And even he, fully man, wept to God to take it away if he could. What a humble prayer. Thank you, God, for praying that and for the writers of the Gospels to include it. This humble prayer where Christ says, I don't want to go through this failure. I don't want to go through this suffering. Take it from me if you can. But not my will, but yours. And then he tries telling his disciples what's coming. But they're expecting their biggest win yet, right? 
And at that moment when they're feeling like it's all going to come together in a win, their Messiah is arrested, tried, beaten, hung on a cross, and he dies. And in that loss, that moment of anti-success, in that moment, he says, it is finished. This is so antithetical to the narratives that we sell ourselves, right? It is truly an upside-down way of seeing. And he doubles down on it by saying, take up your cross and participate in it. The stories we write, both in a literary sense and also the stories that we're writing every day inside our own heads, making meaning out of the life we're living, if they're success narratives that don't include the cross of Christ, then they render Christ superfluous. Let's get a little insight from two titans of modern American fiction. Flannery O'Connor, Madeline Leangle. They both wrote many well-known novelists. They're both, they both passed away in the last 50 years. But they were well-known American novelists in their time. And both of them have written extensively on the writing process itself. Both women also happen to be Christians. And their writings on art and faith are some of the best prose on the subject that you will find. Flannery O'Connor called writing the gift of creating life with words. It's creation. It's generative. It's revelatory. Remember what I said at the beginning, where a story doesn't exist until the telling. Story is a, is a narrative of meaning sitting there waiting to be told that doesn't exist until the telling. And it's the telling that creates it. Not so much as if it's like the context, contents of a dark room made visible when you turn on the light. Stories of the light itself, which is nothing until it's turned on, and by its light, we see. Flannery O'Connor said this in Mystery and Manners is a collection of essays on writing. And being a Christian and a writer, a lot of, a lot of different topics are covered. She said this when she was sort of responding to criticism about her work being too dark (laughs) or not inspirational enough. Something I can relate to as a filmmaker who can make dark films. Um, She says this, by separating nature and grace as much as possible, he, the critic of her work, reduces his conception of the supernatural to pious cliches and can only recognize nature in literature in only two forms, the sentimental and the obscene. He forgets that sentimentality is an excess, a distortion of sentiment, usually in the direction of an overemphasis on innocence. We lost our innocence in the fall. And our return to it is through the redemption, which was brought about by Christ's death and by our slow participation in it. Sentimentality is a skipping of this process in its concrete reality and an early arrival at a mock state of innocence. 
get that? There was, there was a lot there. Sentimentality is a skipping of the process of the slow participation in the cross. Take up your cross. You will have trials. Guys, participating in Christ's death is slow. That's why it often feels like failure. Because suffering isn't suffering unless it's slow. If it's quick, it's pain. Ow, that hurt. I'm done. Suffering is pain slowed down. To participate in the cross is to endure trial. And to write a success narrative, a sentimental narrative, or even a failure narrative that skips this process is to write a lie. A lie that we must be disillusioned from. I'm not necessarily talking about books that our writers may write and publish or screenplays that screenwriters may write and make. I mean the narratives that all of us are writing within our hearts and minds every day. That's Flannery O'Connor. Madeline Liangle, which is a tongue twister, wrote A Wrinkle in Time. She's well known for that. She said the phrase that I named my production company after. She said, Christian art? (laughs) Art is art. Painting is painting. Music is music. A story is a story. If it's bad art, it's bad religion, no matter how pious the subject my company's called Bad Theology because Bad Religion was already the name of a band and I couldn't name a company Bad Religion. So to call your company Bad Theology is to remember bad art is bad theology. And it sounds cooler than calling it good theology because who wants a production company called Good Theology? Um, she, uh, Her story is incredible because... She was a great writer, and she graduated college and got published early. Not a huge success, but she was published. And then she went through a long stretch of failure. Uh, In one of her, again, this is a collection of essays. She says, after the success of my first novels, I was not prepared for rejections for the long years of failure. I've written about this decade of failure in a circle of quiet. I learned a lot of valuable lessons during that time, but there's no doubt they were bitter. I read that. I've learned about this decade of failure in a circle of quiet. I was like, I got to order that book. I got to read about this decade of failure. Because in some ways, I'm, it, it gives me context and meaning for the decade that I'm going through. Talking about bad theology, this company I started back in 2015. I left the comfort of the day job went out on my own to pursue the dream, risked it all, took a big swing, and experienced a lot of failure. And the degree that I was expecting success made the failure that much harder. And it was bitter. There was bitter failure. And I feel like, you know, that was 2015. I'm in year seven of this journey that still feels like it's in progress for me. I've had enough success to keep going. There's a point where if you just keep failing, you're like, all right, I'm I'm just not good. I'm going to do something else. So you have enough success to keep you going to show that I can do this, but not enough to make it feel yet like all of my risks 
was validated. All of the pain and suffering was yet validated. But I'm starting, finally starting. In his mercy, I am starting to get it, (laughs) that my failures are the story, the crucial part of my fullness. Madeline Engel says, the discipline of creation, meaning uh, creating an art, the writing of the story, that discipline is an effort toward wholeness. That's the story I want you to hear me teasing to you. Not failure, not success, fullness, wholeness. Shakespeare's the greatest living, he's dead, the greatest writer of all time. The greatest writer who ever lived, not because he wrote some of the greatest, most beautiful poetry we've ever heard, or he had a vocabulary so large he was inventing new words in every play, but because he told stories, those things, and the fact that he told stories of fullness. There was a wholeness to the life cycle in his plays. I grew up in the theater, did a lot of Shakespeare's dear to my heart. I've read almost all of them and acted in a fair amount. It's not literature. You're not actually supposed to read Shakespeare. You're supposed to perform Shakespeare. It's a play. So if you really want to get into Shakespeare... Get a buddy and, and perform it. That's, that's how you experience it. If there was murder, there was revenge. If there was revenge, there was consequence to that revenge. The avenged got avenged. There was a wholeness, a fullness to the cycle of violence. They were violent. He had violent plays, but he was responsible with that violence. If there was love in life, there was heartbreak. There was bitterness. All the balances of the life cycle. This is the life we are living, whether we are allusion to it or not. There's more to the Michael Waltrip story. He writes about blaming God for his loss that day. The loss of his mentor on his greatest day of victory. But he said he woke up the next morning and saw that experience in a different context. He said he, he believed it was Dale Sr.'s time to go. And on that day when God took him, he, Michael, would use that victory to honor Dale for the rest of his life. I'm not trying to make his story an allegory to Christ, not at all. But I am trying to reframe these wins and losses within the cosmic truth of Christ. In a way, Michael committed to taking up Dale Sr.'s cross that day. And when he was tempted to quit, to give up racing altogether, something no one would have derided him for. He came back. And in the 63-year history of the Daytona 500, only 12 men have won the race more than once. And two years after Dale Sr. died, Michael Waltrip joined that list. And he was not racing for himself that day. He was racing for Dale. It's a good story, right? Make a good movie. It's tempting not to get romantic about that story. Because for some of us, we will have success. Some of us will have failure. Some of us won't achieve the thing we want. Not all of our dreams will come true. I'm finishing a new film 
called Long December. Many of you in this room are participants in that story. And it's a story where I work out these ideas. Because I can't help but make a thing and have it just be a wrestling with the things that I'm struggling with. It's a story about a musician who's chasing the dream. But this fictional musician is very much a proxy for myself who's wondering when will the big break happen? One of the main questions in the film is when do you let the dream go? One of my partners calls the film a sticky note on my bathroom mirror. (laughs) Instead of writing an inspirational therapy quote, I make a whole movie wrestling with these ideas. And Long December is meant to be a reframing for me of what it means to pursue the dream. Of taking broken dreams, failure, seeing them as part of a new dream. Of fullness. Fullness. You might not get your big break. You might not get rich and famous. You may have to surrender your definition of success. Your compulsion toward achievement especially us Enneagram 3s. But we can all have a fullness of life if we we see our successes and failures in the context of the cross. The resurrection, which is the fullness of the cross. Like I said, success is not bad. It is welcome. But it is incomplete. Achievement feels suspiciously a lot like wholeness. When you experience it. But it's not. So embrace your wins. Embrace them gladly. And your victories. But don't say it is finished. If you're like me, you keep trying to reframe your losses, your suffering, your failures as plot points within a success narrative. Or the depressive might do the same on a story of a failure narrative. Right? Neither are healthy. But what I'm learning is that is not the eyes with which we should see. If I view my loss as a participation in the cross, then the cross crucified, the cross Christ crucified, Christ risen, becomes the eyes through which I see. And where a personal success narrative once stood, a cosmic restoration narrative, a resurrection narrative replaces it. St. John of the Cross called this idea luminous darkness. Luminous darkness. All saying must be balanced by unsaying. All knowing must be humbled by unknowing. All light must be informed by darkness. And all success by suffering. This is fullness. Flannery O'Connor, again, she said, in the long run, a people is known not by its statements or statistics, but by the stories that it tells. And there's a story at the heart of our faith, our religion, a story that looked a lot like failure at certain points, but it's a story of fullness that we're invited to participate in. Don't shortcut it. It's everything. Write your internal narratives within the context of that participation. 
I want to close with this. I'm going to read a little bit of a lyrics from a song. And then I want to invite us to respond. This song is aptly named, I See Things Upside Down, by Derek Webb. What looks like failure is success. What looks like poverty is riches. When what is true looks more like a knife, it looks like you're killing me, but you're saving my life. What looks like weakness can do anything. What looks like foolishness is understanding. When what is powerful has not come to fight, it looks like you're going to war, but then you lay down your life. What looks like torture is a time to rejoice. What sounds like thunder is a comforting voice. When what is beautiful looks broken and crushed, I say, I don't know you, but you say, it is finished. I want to talk to the people like me this morning. If you have resonated with anything I've said, if you feel like you need to surrender your internal success narrative, if you've made an idol out of your achievement, your dreams, if you're ready to let it go, stand with me because I am standing here. (laughs) And... I'll give us an opportunity to respond. So go ahead and just stand if you would, if that's you. If you feel like it's time to lay down, surrender if you've made an idol of that success. Or if you want to stop writing that narrative in your head, if you want peace from the busyness of framing every event, every win and loss. If you just want to experience peace and presentness and wholeness, if you just want to say, God, I trust you. I participate in the cross, in the death, in the resurrection. God, I trust you. Lord, to the extent that we make idols of our success, of our achievement, we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, as a nation and as a culture that idolizes winning, we ask for your forgiveness. husbands and wives as brothers and sisters as kids that seek our own achievement above another we ask for your forgiveness Lord show us the way of the cross the participation in the story of Christ Show us fullness.
Remember your words where you say, I'm telling this for your peace. This should not produce anxiety. This should not produce guilt. This should not produce shame. This should produce peace. Because you will have trials. But I have overcome the world. I'll invite the prayer team up, Josiah and anyone who's serving today for prayer. If anyone needs a hand on their shoulder to hear a word of prayer in their ear, you can come forward, receive prayer. And if you just need to sit in that peace, we can stay here for a moment. Hey, I just want to make an adjacent invitation. Um, As I think there's probably someone here and maybe several people who feel stuck. You can get stuck in your victories and you can get stuck in your losses. And here's the beautiful thing is Jesus wants to take them both. He's like, I want your wins and I want your losses. And There are probably people here who are stuck in a win. And it's hard to get stuck in a win because now you define yourself by this type of person. This is who you have to be and you can't keep it up. I'm not saying it's hard. I'm saying you absolutely can't. And then some of you are stuck in your losses and you define yourself by the things that went wrong. And and if that's you, if, if you feel like you're stuck in a win or loss, I want you to come up and, and get ministry. I think the Lord wants to speak over you today and bring a new balance to your spirit. Because Jesus really does want your wins and your losses. You don't get, that's the beauty about being a believer. You don't get to own your wins. But you also don't get to own your losses. Because we are living and working with Christ. We're not working for Christ. We're not trying to live up to some expectation. We're, <laughs> we are defined by the love of God, not by our own successes. And so if that's you, if you feel stuck, I want to invite you up to, to get prayer um, from our team. And I feel like maybe, maybe you can get a little bit unstuck today, so. been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.